0: Good afternoon, Hope Reformed Baptist Church. Amen. That'll do. Uh, open up to Song of Solomons. We're, we're walking through this great uh, book of the Bible. If this is your uh, your first time with us, you've caught us on our second night moving through the Song of Solomons. If you're a teenager with your parents, you can use this opportunity to just find a new seat because this whole book is about the beauty and the goodness of, God, of romantic sexual love in marriage. And, and we reminded ourselves last week why it's worthwhile going through this despite, or sometimes because of, uh, precisely because of the way that, that we as conservative Christians can can pendulum swing and react to the way our world talks about sex. So our world is always telling us how good it is and it's best served up in a, in a buffet style, free love, have what you want, say no to nothing, jump all in. And what the book of the Song of Solomons comes in is it sort of corrects, Our good reaction, but it can go too far, our reaction to just entirely repress. And so rather instead of saying we're in a sexual world and a sexualized culture and there's lots of temptations uh, within and without, instead of redirecting those desires and thinking on God's good gift of love and romance and marriage and sex, we, we just repress and we kind of deny that we're sexual beings and and so, and mentally just uh, uh, lock down and throw our brains and our hormones into a bunker, everything's in reverse, trying to get out of that way of thinking and, and that can become very very frustrating, not least because because it it creates a false guilt because we we aren't meant to feel bad for feeling sexual. We are meant to feel and be brought to repentance, feel bad and be brought to repentance for ill-placed sexual desires and lustful desires and sinful desires. But, But being made as sexual beings means that we would, on one hand, expect a book like this to be in the Bible, if God is always saying all the time, save it for marriage, it's beautiful and amazing, save it for marriage, and we sort of laughed last week at the, at the old joke about, you know, often for Christians it's like sex is filthy, dirty, disgusting and vile, save it for the one you love the most. And we sort of got to get out of that rut and realize, uh, if God loves it so much, where's the book that tells us to have fun and go for it? And that's the book of the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs of Solomon. This is, in its own wording, the best of the best of the books, of the highlights that Solomon wrote, and he wrote thousands. This is his best song, and it's all about the beauty of married love. It's also it's good for us to sort of come to this book again in somewhat of a of a correction because uh, uh, we need the emphasis being pushed towards not just away from sin but towards marital love and romance. Now, for, for many of us, we're, we're first generation Christians, and you didn't grow up with this, with this great Christian romantic view of marriage being held out in front of you in mom and dad. Some of you are from broken families, or you've had a broken home yourself. You've experienced the the, the disruption of divorce and pain. and And so this whole idea of wonderful beautiful complimentary love and romance is very foreign to you some some of us grew up in in non-christian homes that were very harsh maybe even abusive from mum and dad or it was matriarchal and mum just ran the show and everybody just had to sit down and shut up when she went on her rants and dad just about hated her uh, uh, and and mum or maybe it was the other way around and dad was really chauvinistic he ran the show everybody got out of the way when he got angry and he degraded mum and there wasn't romance there maybe we- we have, we've come from a background where our parents modelled sort of open marriages and free love, and that's what we think now, or, or that's what we grew up thinking. And, and the Bible needs to do a lot of correction. So again, the Book of Sol- Song of Solomon's songs helps us and fixes up uh, fixes us up well. Now, some of you, uh, have, by the grace of God, you maybe you're newly married or a few years into marriage, and this whole first-generation Christian thing is—it's—you've uh, just figured out complementarianism and male headship and female submission, so you're like you're still on page two and three of that, and then and that we're just trying to get through the week without throwing stuff at each other and, uh, and and without you know being horrible non-Christians like like we you know we're just getting used to sort of doing family devotions, and you throw in top of all of that the fact that it's meant to be delightful, pleasurable, romantic. This is like, some of us aren't even ready for that. We're just getting used to this whole Christian marriage business. Well, the Song of Solomon's comes in, and uh, it throws business all around, this sort of language like, romance, my lover and my bride, my dear, the most beautiful among women. And now guys you are like, oh, it's just getting used to leading, running family worship, now I've got to be romantic. Yes, you do. Life is tough. This is my command. Be romantic towards your wife. Well, maybe you've come from a home that is just ultra conservative, like more conservative than the Bible ever meant to be. And so for you, you were always told, maybe in word or just in vibe, you were told you can date after you're married and you can get married after you're 40 and you can not do the deed in marriage because it might lead to sinful things like dancing and other <laughs> sinful, horrible things like that. And so they were uh, uh, very, very conservative. You know, they didn't really, really believe in sex except for making, making babies. And they taught you that when a mummy and a daddy love each other very much, they read the King James and they put on turtlenecks and that's it. And you, gotta, you come to the Song of Solomons, you go, wow, this is in the Bible. And it is This is the glorious correction to many of us from wherever we're coming from. God loves marriage. He has created and he invented that feeling you get when you have a crush. He invented the emotions and the hormonal rushes of infatuation. He designed the curves of a female body and the desire of Female sex drive and male sex drive and testosterone. It's all his idea. It's all on purpose. And we shouldn't have this idea that, you know, like the common in our day is you get married and then you're just these boring, middle-aged, sexless old people. And the, 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 the data shows, like the data, the surveys show that the people who have the most frequent and satisfying sex lives are conservative, married, Christian people. Boom. It's right out there. It's even in the science. So even though that's the case, uh, we can still feel like this. And again, the Song of Solomons comes in and reminds us it is a good, joyful, pleasurable, romantic thing to have uh, this experience of sexual love as long as it is within God's God's purview and God's design of marriage, maybe in the future. And so you. The, the sexual love that you have now is largely controlled and hopeful and self-controlled and planning. If you are married, this is a this is a book of the Bible that encourages and and that stokes those things into flame. And this tonight's uh, passage, we said last week when we opened up into the book, it's not set out like a narrative. It's not like a. A dirty manual, it's not a smut novel, it's it's far away from all of those other things and what it is, it's a beautiful poem that can be interpreted lots of different ways at lots of different portions but what it definitely is, is not an allegory about God and his people though it might point us to that, it is a romantic song of poems between husband and wife. And last, and, and we said it's not like that you hear the, the, the story about how they meet and then you see his proposal and then it moves into the betrothal period and marriage. It's not quite like that. But it does seem to scholars to have a couple of, of, of uh, tangible uh, chronological sections. Now, last week we got up to uh, verse uh, 11 of chapter 1. Now, look in your Bible. Up until about verse 7 of chapter 2, Up until about verse 7 of chapter 2, it seems like it's still this introductory poem and song of love. And then in chapter 2, verse 8, until the end of chapter 3, verse 5, it's this pre-marriage scene where they're maybe a week or a couple of months out from their marriage, and they're, they're pre-married, and we'll see that when we get there. And then after chapter 3, verse 5, it looks like there's a very evident wedding scene and lots of marriage poetry. And then after that, they sort of move into, you know, it's, they're, not, they're not dating anymore. There's no courtship. So tonight, as we sort of go through this chunk of Scripture, uh, finishing off chapter 1 and then into 2 and 3, our mindset is sort of in the, the pre-marriage portion of time. So that is the, the 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 dating. If you grew up on a prairie, you might call it courtship. Uh, you have boyfriend or girlfriend or courtier. I don't know what you call them, and uh, or maybe you're engaged or betrothed in the old way of saying it, or. If, if you're a family that does arranged marriages, then you're allocated to somebody. Whatever it is, this is the period that is not so much single, we'll touch on that, but but you're, you're with somebody. And uh, 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 this is not so much about picking the right person, but let's assume the person that you're with is going towards marriage. That's the kind of scene that we're in. And we said last week... It, as is appropriate, without, without eliciting lust or sinful desires, still it is good for all of us, if we're married or single and dreaming or we're preparing for marriage and, and planning and building, we put ourselves into the story of the book. The point of the book is, is that it is trying to show us the ideal version of what married love should be that we should all aim at. So it's a good thing to sort of put yourself here and imagine yourself as the people. Now... First of all, let's finish off chapter one and into chapter two, from verse verse twelve onwards from chapter one. And this is the the embrace of this married couple's words and bodies. The embrace of their words and bodies. Now, uh, uh, she says, while the king was on his couch. Full stop. Man, favourite Bible verse. It's biblical to have a couch, maybe. I've got an old captain's chair at my dining table and a recliner in the, in the, in the living room. I don't know what you do, but find a way to obey this verse. Can't, embroider this on the back of the couch. I don't know. The king was on his couch. It would be weed if it was in the family room and included the second half of the verse. My nard gave forth its fragrance. Don't embroider that in the family room. My beloved to me, she says, is a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved to me is a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of en- of en- Now, this is either that he's sitting on his... bank. He's a king, remember? and They're having a banquet. Now, either they're at the banquet and he's sitting on his king's table, a uh, seat at the end of the king's table, and she's a couple of seats removed from him, or maybe she's doing the queenly thing and visiting people like you do on your wedding night. And she's saying, I want my perfumes, the oils I bought, the, 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 the shampoo I use. I want it to waft down the table and get his attention, right? The, the nard the, um, uh, is, is a very expensive uh, spice from the Himalayas. Uh, then the, 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 She's got an incense. She's got myrrh. All of these perfumes. She's saying, I want him to pick up on my smell and, and remember me and be distracted by my beautiful smells. It's either that... Or the couch is like this, it's basically like a bed. It's a bedroom couch and you do bedroom things on that bedroom couch. So maybe they're back in the chambers, in the bedroom, and she's saying, uh, I want our love to be this all sense uh, 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 experience, smell, sight, touch, taste, everything. I want it to sort of be like a, an overflow of a perfume shop. As my and, and, and the sweetness of that is what his love to me is like. Um, she says here about this sachet in verse 13. My beloved to me is like a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. Here's what they used to do. Before the spray-on perfume, they would get nice smelling little uh, bundles and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, fragrant type flowers that might be dried. They wrap it up into a little bit of uh, linen and they sort of wear it like a, uh, a necklace so that it sort of sits there on the chest and the body heat sort of radiates through it, melts it a bit and gives forth a nice fragrance. Now, the interpretations of this verse are too hilarious to pass over. You may have come across them if you've tried to be edified by this verse. I hope you're married when you're reading this verse. Uh, but as you came across this verse, you went, "What's that?" And you look to the look to the the commentators, and they gave you all sorts of confusing explanations. Here's some that have been put forward by the allegorical view of Scripture that this book is just a picture of of spiritual things. Here's some that the two breasts of the bride here represent. Moses and Aaron, terrible nicknames, husband, terrible (laughs) nicknames, some people have believed that they represent the old, I'll be careful with my hand gestures, the old and the new testaments giving forth the milk of the word and the sachet in the middle giving the beautiful smell is Christ himself. I don't need to tell you, I think that's wrong. Uh, Some people have said it is the two tables of the law, loving God and loving neighbor. Very unromantic to tell your wife that. Or that it is the Christian ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. (laughs) Or that it represents the Urim and Thurim, the dice, the two dice that the high priest used to use in the Old Testament to discern what is correct. That guy's a nerd. It is not that. Some people have said it is the hearing of the word of God and the keeping of the word of God. Well, I I do want you to both hear tonight and go home and do the Word of God as we read in Proverbs 5, which says, Husbands, let your wife's breasts fill you at all times with delight. Here's the idea. Uh, If you're smelling, you've had a bad day, you chuck on a sachet of myrrh, it sits there between the breasts and it makes any bad smell better. Here's the application. You have a terrible day at work everything's going wrong, everything in life makes you want to give up, you come home and you see your wife and she says, right here, everything is better. Everything is better. Proverbs 5 tells us that the delight of a husband is to be right there, smack bang, in the chest of the wife. You may have no money for his favorite car. You may not be able to buy his favorite shirt or get him tickets to his favorite brand, a band, I mean. You have two God-given gifts to your husband already made for you and it's right there in the Bible. Let's not get more conservative in what the Bible says. It's good. She's saying, he's a sweet fragrance to me and I want him to be with me in a close, chest-oriented embrace. And all the husband said... <laughs> sounded reluctant. <laughs> all right. Verse 15. They start outdoing each other in compliments. He comes back at her and says, no, no, behold, my beloved... Uh, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you're beautiful. Your eyes are doves. And she comes back at him. Well, Behold, you are beautiful, my, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our, our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. Now, here's the idea. Maybe we're back on that meadow scene. And what she's saying is we're lying down together having this beautiful romantic activity on the grass... And the beams of our house are, are the trees. We're out with the trees and the leaves are our ceiling and we're on the couch of green grass. God's made this world to be enjoyed, body and creation, and we're enjoying it all. Or maybe she's saying we're in the bedroom and we're, having, we're, being, we're, we're making love, but the feeling is like Eden. And this is what true love does to it. It's it, godly, holy, marital love. It gives back Themes and echoes of the Garden of Eden. Maybe that's what she's saying. It's like, being here with you, this must have been what it was like for Adam and Eve. I don't imagine it being better than this. Can you imagine if it was perfect? It feels perfect with you. We're in this glorious, beautiful, natural arena of love, she's saying. Very poetic. Now, chapter 2 comes in where she puts forward an element of, <clears throat> of, uh, of uh, insecurity. And we'll get there in just a moment. But here's our take home. I've already given given you, gentlemen, a couch and chest, already two applications. Here's something for both mm, husband and wife to do. Use your words generously, genuinely, not flattery and silly, but genuine, uh, uh, intentional, thoughtful compliments should be flowing back and forth between husband and wife in such a way that you're trying to outdo one another in showing honoring love. Now, I know, I know what you might say, I told her I loved her. I already did that. I made sure I did it. It was in the vows. The pastor was standing there. I gave her a ring. I did. I told her she's beautiful and that I love her. And the, applica- and the, the, the implication of this text is that should happen more than once. An hour. It should be happening frequently, not just in the past, but every day, every outfit, every hairstyle, as often as they change it within the hour before you go out on a date. You tell her she's beautiful, you love parts of her, the uh, specify part, and also wife back to husband. So here's something to ask as you go home. Instead of just following the advice of some to keep the spark alive, stuff the spark, throw timber on the fire and fuel on the fire of your romantic words. Here's a question to ask yourselves as you're driving home. If you have kids, please wait till you get home. They will jump out of a moving vehicle. Uh, But you should ask this question. What do you think about the way I talk to you and about you? Do I annoy you? Do I frustrate you? Do I I embarrass you actually in the ways that I talk about you? Do I degrade you? Do I disrespect you? Or do I romance you? That's a question to ask your spouse tonight. You may think you're doing great. Just let him or her tell you precisely how you're going. Now, the next part, especially as we're thinking pre-marriage, what does God want us to learn from Song of Solomon for the pre married And this part might surprise you, but in chapter 2 onwards, verse 1 and onwards, we see this theme of the importance of physical attraction. All right, look at verse 1. She says... I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. What people, it sounds like she's saying, I'm a beautiful flower. What she's actually naming herself by are these two very common, uh, highly proliferating flowers that would, that would grow. So she's not saying, I'm the beautiful rose that grows above all the rest. The rose of Sharon was very common. It would be all throughout the valley. And same with the, uh, uh, the lily of the valley. It would be something that would happen in, in, in high amounts and just sort of litter the whole meadow. And she's saying... I, I'm confident in my beauty, but I'm really not all... I'm not, I'm not a standout. I'm not a knockout 10. I'm, I'm pretty, but i am either beautiful amongst all women? And what she is doing, because she's a woman, is that she is fishing for compliments. That's right. Now, it's good. It's a good thing. Here's what I don't understand when husbands complain to me about their wives fishing for compliments. She could not make it easier for you. Take... The bait, right? She says, I don't know, this dress is okay. It might look, she, of course, she's going for attention. She deserves your attention. Just jump in. Are you kidding? Are you wearing that dress or is it wearing you? Oh, baby, you gotta, you just ju- take the bait. And he does, he absolutely takes the bait. But she's a little bit insecure. I mean, he's the king. All of the young girls have his posters on their wall, bought his albums. She's dating now and getting, oh, she's married to the, 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 the biggest hits rock uh, uh, star of all of Israel. And she's like, I feel like I'm punching above my weight here. I think I'm, I'm, a li- I'm just one of the lilies. You know, it's like In our day, it might be like a daisy. Pretty, but pretty common. And he says to her, verse 2, as a lily among thorns, so is my love. Among the other women, a lily among the brambles. You're like finding a beautiful, if you are a lily, let's go with the lily, but you're like a lily that is lodged between a whole bunch of thorns. Now, at this, all of the other women kind of said, ouch. He's like, all right, we're thorns then. And he says, yes. Now, you need to remember, women, you deserve no man's attention except for the husband that you have. And you should not seek or want the attention of men whose hearts are given to another woman. And this is very tricky. For guys, eyes wander. More frequently for the women, it's that they want multiple eyes and sets of eyes to be on them. And so what we're seeing here is a delight in the individuality and the specificity and the exclusivity of his desires. He says, girls at the gym, at work, on the bus, at church, bunch of thorns, babe, you are the flower." And we're supposed to say, that is good. I don't mind being a thorn for him because he's not my husband. That's how women should think. And this is how a husband should think. There may be other things that, uh, other, that, 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 are, that are on a, on a you know, teenage boy's top 10 features in a girl's body list. That's ludicrous and infantile. We say, here's the woman God has given to me. I love her with an exclusivity. And it is with all of the imperfections that she might feel. You know, the creases here or my long neck or this shade of skin that I have because of the sun. And he's saying, you. I love you specifically. And she returns the favor. She says in verse 3, Well, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. Right? You're going for a walk through the forest and there's a bunch of eucalyptus and then you come across a beautiful, fresh apple tree on a long hike. It is refreshing to be able to find that. That's what she says he's like. Well, you're just as unique. This is what uh, 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 Ian Duguid, a, a commentator on this text, says. He says... If the only biblical advice on seeking a spouse were Proverbs 31.30, which says, Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised, then we might think that chemistry does not matter much in relationships. And of course, the important point of the Proverbs passage is that chemistry is not the only thing that matters. Character is more vital. Yet, the Song of Songs reminds us that mutual attraction has its own vitally important place. If you cannot honestly say to your spouse on the wedding day that she is as unique in your eyes like a single lily among a world of thorns or the only apple tree in a whole forest of ordinary trees for us, then we have no business marrying them. We can get in this ultra... Ultra biblical, you know, traditional way of thinking in order to try to restore patriarchy. And we look at a woman and think she's convenient, she's XY, she's XX chromosome, XX chromosome, you never know these days, she's XX chromosome, she's Christian, she'll submit, it'll do. Do you love her? He goes, eh, she'll do. That is not going to make a good vow, and it's not the fullness of biblical love. This is why one of, the, one of the first questions I'm asking people as he sort of pulls me aside or she might, you know, sort of suggest to me, hey, you know, what, what do you think about us? You know, I, I feel like we're moving towards hopefully planning for marriage. What do you think? One of the first questions, it doesn't sound very spiritual, but I ask is, does she laugh at your jokes? Women, hint, if you like him, laugh at all of his jokes. Uh, uh, and, and if he goes, yeah, she thinks I'm funny. I go, that's great. You have chemistry. And, or I'll ask him, like, do you, do you miss her? Do you ever miss her? Do you feel like excited when you're going to be around her? And if the answer is no, you know, like, man, I I think you should be honest with her about your feelings and the fact that you're lacking chemistry because she's going to go (laughs) and vow herself in an oath to loving and being with you forever. She should at least know if you get no butterflies when you think about her. And also the same back for the woman to the man. So chemistry is important. You see this next part come through, uh, I think it's the end of verse 4 and, and onwards there. She's calling him this apple tree. We've got this, this idea of pleasant patriarchy. Okay, here's what I mean. In verse uh, 3, she says, my beloved is, is, a, is an apple tree. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. She's saying, when I come to this apple tree in the forest, it's hot, it's summer, it's, I'm sweating, I come here and I have two things in his presence. I have a shade from the harshness, I have protection, and I've also got the sweetness of the apples, which is this, this nourishing pleasure. And this is what a what, uh, 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 loving, manly, godly, husbandly love, romantic love should be like. That some people come across this whole, okay, I need to be the head and I need to lead and I need to rule and I need to take dominion and I need to subdue and I need to push her down that I might conquer. They go, you're you're getting it wrong. Uh, A good husband should be able to be tough on the outside and on the inside, rough when he needs to be, defensive, taking dominion, conquering things for the Lord God. But towards his wife, towards the one that he loves, there is supposed to be, not that he's got his armor on and he's sharp and and hard and abrasive, but that he's like an apple tree. You need a tender side gentleman where she can genuinely not just say, he doesn't hit me, or "He he would kill somebody who broke into the house, or he makes enough money, but being with him is genuinely pleasant. I like his company. He helps heal me. I love to be with him. He is sweet. There's plenty of gentlemen of whom that is not true. Babe, I bring home the money, I pay for the house, you have enough food, I don't know what you're complaining about. Shut up, baby. And the kids get brutalized or picked up and thrown around because he's the man and he is nothing like what is being shown here. He's a fool, a kid with an infantile temper in a man's body and, and what is supposed to, yes, patriarchy, yes, complementarity, yes, male headship that feels both safe and pleasant, like a tree with shade and sweet fruit A husband's love and his embrace is supposed to be both sweet and safe, both pleasant and a refuge. And that is what we're being shown here. So where there is mutual physical affection and where there is an exciting infatuation with another that is expressed in words, as we said, and when there is the rightly ordered gender roles, male to female and female to male, what you have here is what we see here in verse 5. She says, Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. This is what happens. When 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 a girl knows that his banner over me is not conquered, is not even mine, or is not Goder or anything like that, but is love. This is, this is military language. When, when, when you carry the banner over the, over the armies uh, and the king's name would, would be, and, and his message would be on the banners, and this is what she's saying. She's saying, I know that in his safe, sweet embrace, his banner over me is love. That's a beautiful thing for a wife to be able to say. And what she's saying is that she is sick with love. She calls for the raisins and the apples because she is sick with love. And then she goes into verse six His left hand is under my head, and his right hand, the word could be caresses me or embraces me. We don't need to draw a diagram, but there is a romantic, intentional, bodily embrace. And what we find is that she calls this, which I think is a great name for it if you've been deeply in love, you know the feeling, sick with love, right? Her knees are weak. She's feeling breathless. She hates being away from him. The fact that she has to wait however many months till the wedding or to see him again just kills her. She is sick with love. Now, that's a good thing that God gives where there is intense desire, but there is plenty of warnings about being sick with love. This is when the the chemistry is turned up so high that the two are just so intensely in love. That's good and godly, but this side of the fall, there needs to be care. Here's some positives about being sick with love. First of all, you have a joy and an acceleration that colors everything. It's like the world was in black and white before, and now it's in 4D. Full color, 1080p. It's so clear and beautiful. That's a good effect of being sick with love. You're just skipping. You were poor and broke and sad yesterday, and now you're poor and broke and really in love today, and you're just skipping through the valleys, uh, uh, and you're very, very happy. The second thing is that you start to think about the future. You know, you were just a a single person, just sort of doing life as it came. And then this person came across and you're getting to know each other and you love each other and you're sick with love and you start going, I need to be with them. This is a God-given drive. You start thinking, when are we going to have kids? Where are we going to live? Actually, have I got my money together to make this marriage thing happen? And you start thinking and planning for the future because that sick with love effect pushes you into drive. The third thing is that it then motivates good things. Often, being sick with love can motivate some very good things. Like, I need to be more pure for this person. I need to have some more wisdom and biblical knowledge so that I can speak some wisdom into this relationship. I, I want to know a little bit more about gender roles so that I can honor him as my husband or protect her as my wife. I, I need some discipline here so that I'm not, I'm not just living for myself, but I want to be with them. You might kick you into gear with a work ethic and financial responsibility and maybe presentability. You get a haircut, you buy a shirt that, that doesn't just zip up or Velcro, and you start wearing pants, and you buy a pair of boots is apparently what you do, and you start feeling good because you're sick. Sick with love. I'm going to start looking pretty good. And you can see the positives and potentials of people. There's the fourth thing. Being sick with love makes you look at somebody and go, yeah, but I, all the positives are just on full display. And not only that, but I, I, I can see where you're going. I can see your potential and, and I want to join that and make a life together. So it's a good thing to be sick in love and it unifies your souls. On a spiritual level, you start to mingle in a way that is hard to, hard to put into words. That's the good effect of being sick with love. Here's the negatives. The negatives of being sick with love. First of all is tunnel vision. Tunnel vision. He is the only thing that matters to me. She is the only thing that I see on the horizon right there. Church doesn't matter. Responsibilities don't matter. I can call in sick to work. I want to be with the one I love. Secondly, you can think of the short-term future as opposed to the long-term future. So you you, you become sick with love and you start thinking about where you want to go on dates and when you're going to have the marriage and how many kids you're going to have before you're 21 and what farm you're going to buy and how many dresses you're going to make yourself and how you're going to learn to make sourdough. And then the question doesn't ever come into your brain, where's all the money coming from? Who's going to buy the farm? What am I going to do about my job and my uni degree? Oh, wait, hang on. So so it can give you future short-term sight and you become unrealistic. Sometimes being sick with love can motivate bad things. As we saw in verse 7, it can awake the sexual desires that, that are going to be very hard to put the brake on. It can make you desire attention from them in destructive ways and make you highly jealous in ways that can become sinful. Or it can motivate an escapism, an irresponsibility. Babe, let's just elope. Let's get away from the world. Let's go and start our life together, us against the world. And that is a motivation of ill intent or well, number four it can being sick with love can make you see all the positives in them it can also blind you to all the negatives, which is the other side of the coin okay because your emotions are turned all the way up to eleven so she says oh he 's so handsome he looks after himself and all the guys are like yeah he's kind of a metrosexual." Uh, That's not the same thing as being a handsome, rugged man. He's so available for me. That's because he's unemployed and doesn't have a job. (laughs) Okay, that's not hard to do. Uh, She's so caring. Or she's an emotional vampire that is manipulating you and dragging your joy down into the mud. Or she's so straightforward in her speech to me. Everyone else sees she is extremely disrespectful and she keeps calling you an idiot. You may be an idiot, but that's not the way that she should be saying it. He's so spontaneous, or he's on the run, and he's always running from the police. Uh, He has no plans, is the other, right? He goes, she's beautiful. So was Delilah, and look what happened there. So you can see all the positives and be blind to the negatives. That's one of the effects of being sick with love. Or lastly, it can make you make rash decisions, emotionally motivated, and logical, wise people around you become the bad guys, the enemies of love, the, 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 the sandballot and the tabia to the beautiful life that you're building together. The, the parents, hear me, parents are not always right on timing. Older people are not always wiser. However, we can feel like sometimes, I'm sick with love, I'm so sincere, you're questioning me, you're questioning my sincerity... No, I'm not saying you're insincere. I'm saying you're insane. Sincere, but insane, because this is one of the beautiful, intoxicating effects of love. So you should not pursue this, this love and this sickness with love without the the safe, uh, the safety of wise counselors around you, a good and godly Bible preaching church that you're genuinely involved in, that people can give you advice. Uh, not a hundred counselors, but but two or three other godly older married couples who can speak to you and uh, of course you have the 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 other two safeties I say as verse seven told us don't awaken this love too early means means don't 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 start pursuing romantic love and affection and and relationship if getting married isn't realistically within a 12-month time frame for you and especially not if the person is not a christian they can give you, you may feel sick with love on an emotional level, when that wears off and it does, they will be unable, either as a husband or as a wife, unable to love you the way God calls them to, even if they're very romantic and rich and all those other things, they are literally enemies of the dearest thing to you on earth, Jesus Christ. They, they in a deep way, despise those things that God commands and therefore Make sure they're a Christian. Make sure uh, uh, you can get married sooner rather than later. Now, now as we, it may feel like we've got all of chapter 2 and a bit of chapter 3 to go, but I'm just going to read chunks because it's really just two scenes. Now, here's, here's a scene of self-control and restraint. Her obeying her own advice from verse 7. Here's what happens. And if you're in the pre-marriage stage, you know exactly what this is like. The need for self-control and restraint. She writes, The voice of my beloved, behold, here he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. Right? He's got energy. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. That's a good thing to call your beloved man. He's like a stag. Behold, there he stands behind that wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. There's lots of things that are romantic when you're with somebody that are creepy when you're not in love. And that would be on my wall, looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. But here's the scene. The scene is she's heard his car pull up, right? The Pajero's pulled up, the, the rundown car he's got or the Mustang, whatever it is. His car's pulled up. She hears him. She can see him. She's up in her, in sort of in her top window and she can see through down the garden lattice and can see out, but he can't see in very much. And he's pulled up and he's excited to be with her and he starts walk, pacing up and down the, the garden path saying, my love, where are you? Where are you? And this is what he starts saying. Look at verse 10. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter has passed. Right? It's springtime. This sermon series takes place in springtime. I didn't plan that, but God did. It's springtime, the time of love and beauty. He says... Uh, For behold, winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom, they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. He says, my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Right? He knows she's in there. He can hear her moving around, saying, come down so I can touch you and see you and embrace you, because he's sick with love as well. And here's what happens to rugged dudes when they're sick in love. Solomon starts talking about the spring, and the flowers and the turtle doves that he didn't even know existed before. How many guys got, mar- got, got got fell in love and realized there's more than like two versions of flowers, and there's multiple dishes that you can cook up, and they don't all come from a packet. And he's going, "It's springtime, and the, the fig tree's out, and the flowers are blossoming." This is sort of the scene that he's <coughs> that he's turned up to a house with a bouquet of roses. He goes, "And and the springtime, he's saying the time of our love is here." This is probably the week of or the few months of their wedding. And so he's really excited to be with her. And he's saying, come on, I've booked you a date. Our last date is a non-married couple. We're going to go on a rowboat on the creek and we're going to go for a hike and we're going to go up to a cute lookout. and We're going to go on a little walk through the bush and, and I've got candlelight dinner for us with your favorite wine. Come on, my darling. I want to spend time with you. And, and this is what happens to guys when they fall in love. They become different people. When I first ever, literally, this is my claim to, that I'm a, not always a beast, right? And when I first saw Joy in my life, she was getting an orientation around at high school. And the first time I saw I was over here with my teenage mates. I don't know what we were doing. It was probably idiotic because we were teenagers. And I'm standing there and I saw her walking over there and I literally double-checked and I saw her and I said to my mates, she is beautiful. Now, their supportive response was, Yeah, right. She's way out of your league. Now, I am, always have been pretty full of myself. So my response was, I'm going to make that woman my bride. I was 14, had no clue what I was talking about. But (laughs) that's what I said. That's what I said. I said, I'm going to make that woman, wasn't a woman, teenage girl, my bride. It's not weird if you're also a teenager. And so I said, that's what I'm going to do. And now, for the next year, she gave me no attention and hated my guts. It's probably pretty easy to see why, and so I, 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 I lo- she, she was beautiful, and then she came to our school, and for the next year, she gave me no attention whatsoever, and it broke me. Until now, here's the point. This is how I knew I was in love. Until we did a Shakespeare play together. Yeah. <laughs> people go, how do you know you were? You know, we we were talk, we, we knew we wanted to marry each other pretty young, and people go, how do you know? I go, I found myself. Taking a break from, uh, amidst all of my rugby, boxing and wrestling, I found myself signing up for a Shakespeare play. And I don't know when or how exactly that happened. She, Joy came up to me in drama one day and goes, hey, you're pretty good. You should do, a, you should do the Shakespeare play. And I probably said, that sounds gay. And she said, oh, well, oh, it would have been good because I'm doing it. And walked off. And before I knew it, my hand is tied up. <laughs> and I got the part that was, that was actually her opposite. Now, here's what's hilarious. It was much ado about nothing, if you know it. And her part was Beatrice, and my part was Benedict. And here's the point: he's the popular jerk, and she's the cute gal that he secretly likes, but she hates him. And the whole storyline is how they, through a very strange series of events, end up falling in love. And that's exactly what happened to us. I, uh, for what I was in, I was crazy about her, and so I just found myself learning Shakespeare. I don't know what clicked. That's how I knew it was real and forever and God was pushing me in the direction because I learned Shakespeare. And anyway, it went through and we uh, we ended up uh, falling for each other and being in love and we ended up getting married and all of that. That's how I knew pretty early because this... Song of Solomon's chapter two effect happened. The king somehow cares about turtle doves, right? The sports jock somehow cared about learning Shakespeare. Every guy knows that feeling of your wife when you first got to know that. Here's here's the call. Restoke that. Remember what caused that and re-say it back to her. But in this pre-marriage time, here's, here's the problem that comes that while he's saying, I don't know what's come over me, babe, but I care about flowers and pretty dresses and songs now. Come and be with me. She exercises the height of restraint and she recites verse 15. It seems like verse 15 ends his quotation and becomes something they say together, or maybe she says it because there's a big change in tone. She says, catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. In in springtime, in the vineyards in Israel, one of the dangers is that little foxes will come in and start nibbling at all of the roots of the vines, and what would have just been a few weeks or months away from a great big beautiful harvest that would lead to wine and celebration and sweetness, instead becomes a dead, dry, bitter uh, uh, vineyard. And what she seems to be saying is there's something in our relationship that if we're not careful, can come in at a time of vulnerability and sweetness and turn it really filthy and can leave us with, with, with burdened consciences and, and spoil our hearts before the Lord. It seems like what she is specifically saying is, a prayer maybe or a call to her and her a fiance or whatever it may be, we need to exercise sexual restraint now because what you're calling me to come and do is not sexual, but I'm afraid that if I come down out of my house and I'm all beautifully dressed and we ride away into the sunset to spend a day together, that it will turn from a beautiful date to a conscience-searing sexual touch uh, uh, going over the line. And this is the danger because they're pre-married. It's not like it's just anybody. They're going to get married. They're, They're a week or a couple of months away from giving their life to each other, but they haven't committed to one another in marital union and vows yet. So she exercises the height of this restraint and says to him, verse 16, my beloved is mine, I am his. She affirms the love. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee right it's it's sunrise time now but the sun's not fully up she's saying i want to be with you but we're not fully married yet we need to wait she says turn my beloved be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains she says go and run away just like you ran here it's too dangerous and that's the height of... And if you've been... Maybe you're there right now as a pre-marriage couple. Maybe you, you remember that and you just remember the burn. You, it's a good desire. You want to give her flowers. You want to, But every time you sort of spend time together or, or, or take her on a nice date and try to honor one another or spend individual time praying, like the temptation is always there. And this is one of the ugly realities of being this side of the curse is that there is no longer the ability to pursue the good God-given romance without putting the foot on the brake. And that is why she, she said in verse 7 of, verse, of chapter 2, do not awaken the love and the desire until it pleases. Now, here's what we see in chapter 3, 1 to 5. It's just a single scene, and it's actually a dream sequence. So imagine her laying in bed, right? She made the right decision. She said, my darling, we're almost married. And, you know, this is why good, wise couples sometimes stay with a friend the week before their marriage, I want to live on their own. Maybe she'll come knocking, or he'll just get tempted and go and spend time with her and it'll go downhill. So she said, No, darling, I can't be with you. It'll be too tempting. So they're apart, and now she's getting nightmares or, or night terrors. She's getting these dreams, right? Here's what happened. Verse 1 of chapter 3 I'm on my bed at night, I sought him whom my soul loves. So I, I sought him, but found him not. It's like she's sort of in a half-wake uh, uh, experience looking for him, and of course he's not there. They're not married yet. He's not in her bed. Uh, I will rise now and go about the city and the streets and the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. In her dream, she's running through the dangerous city just to find him. Verse 3, the watchmen found me as they went about the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Silence from them. She can't find him. She's desperate for him. Verse 4, scarcely had I passed them when I found him who my soul loves. This is this is like she's run in this quick, fast, high-paced, beautiful story montage with these quick flicks of the camera. Then all of a sudden she runs into the one she was looking for. She turns around a corner like in a romance uh, uh, movie. And she runs right into the one whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house, into the chamber of her who conceived me. Now we hear that and we think that's not very romantic. I love you, my darling, so much. Let's go back and meet my mom. Not romantic. But but what's being pursued is just that's where she lives. Right? It's just a, the pure love that we share is that I want to take you back to my family home and be with you. That's where she would live. She says, I want to take you home. and um, She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. What this, there's this theme that comes through here. And, 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 and it's the fact that, and you know it if you're pre-married. That when you're not yet married, everything feels transient and impermanent and momentary. That's why, like, in the, in the dream, uh, the constant theme is I need to get him. He's always away at work. I feel like everybody else is more important. His mom keeps on getting in the way. He has church obligations. When's it all going to be about me and him? And then even when she finds him in her dream, she's holding him so tight because she doesn't want to let him go, right? And this is, this is one of the pains of being in love, looking towards marriage, but you're not yet married, is the saying goodnight. You have to say goodnight walk away from each other, you wave goodbye about a hundred times, you put your window down, you wave goodbye, and then he gets up on the highway and starts driving home and you're still waving goodbye. And then you get up on your bed and you're looking through the window just to catch one last glimpse of him. And this is what she's feeling. I wish I could be, I wish I could embrace him. There's this line that Joy's character Beatrice had in, in, in the Shakespeare uh, song. And, and her, her, uh, my character expressed this love for her that felt forbidden and she said, my heart is so full of love There is none left to protest. That's very romantic. It's very dangerous. That's often how we can feel. I'm so full of love, I'm empty of wisdom and self-control. And her last plea here as she sort of wakes from her dream is, be careful with this dangerous, sickening, infatuating, beautiful thing called romantic love. Don't stoke it up before it can be brought into the consummation of marriage. Don't don't tolerate it, it having little spot fires with random people or other people outside of your marriage. Pursue it in line with pursuing marriage. Love can make you sick. Love can make you foolish. Love can tempt you to do things outside of its time. And love is a dangerous fire. When it is outside of its hearth or outside of its fireplace. And the reason is, the reason why this good gift, right? We might think, why is such a good thing so dangerous? Why is such an amazing gift so damning and and possible to lead us down such a path? And the answer, which is the answer to every problem you have in life and every problem you have in marriage and romance, is you. The problem is you and me. That though God has given us an amazing gift... We have broken natures. We have sinful desires coming up from out of us. So that no matter how many good things God gives to us, we are broken. We are bent towards sin. The temptation comes from within. And to that, God has given us Jesus Christ in the gospel, where where sexual love and desire and romance can get twisted into free love and fornication and adultery. We are guilty. Where, where everything within us sees the good but feels a desire towards the bad, we realize we are broken and God gives the double blessing of the gospel. That you get born again to right desires so that you can fight sin and you can pursue good and godliness. And he also gives forgiveness, pardon through the blood of Jesus Christ. That your sins are done away with because he died for you. And that is the only way that forgiveness comes for all and any sins and sinners, whether or not romance or, or sexual love is your area of particular hang up. You are a sinner as I am. We all are and have one hope of salvation and renewal. And that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. We thank you for this book. We pray that you would bless our marriages and encourage love, that you would bring weddings galore in our midst, but Lord God, that none of it would be done for its own sake, that we would not trip over our feet in the pursuit of this sort of romance and find ourselves tolerating the foxes and, and, and lead, uh, leading us and our partners into sexual sin. Father God, would the marriage bed, as Hebrews 13 tells us, would the marriage bed, that beautiful gift of sexual union in marriage, be held in honor among us all. And would you, Lord God, keep us from being those people that you will judge, the sexually immoral and the adulterer. Would you stoke love for what is good, especially all things that pertain to your glory? Would you take away from us those desires that will destroy and, 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 and harm our love and our holiness? Lord God, would you add to your number, your church, into your kingdom, souls tonight who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? We pray all of this in your name and for your glory. And everybody said, amen. amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.